Welcome to episode number 44 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. We have Jan Blahovic versus Corey Anderson in the main event of UFC Rio Rancho. That fight um, started off pretty slow, but eventually Blahovic was able to catch a huge overhand right and knock out Corey Anderson. So I'll recap that fight and then what to make of uh, what's going to happen at the top of that division. I'll recap the rest of the card for UFC Rio Rancho. Preview the UFC Auckland card that's going to be coming up this coming week. Um, we're going to talk about open scoring after the uh, podcast that I had last week, there was uh, a new news story that came up uh, regarding Kansas, how they're going to start having open, open scoring and how they're going to have it on an Invicta card. So I'll talk about that. Uh, we've got a couple topics on wrestling. So one of them was a really, I don't know what I call it big, but it was it was a notable Twitter controversy where Willie Saylor, who's a, a prominent name in the wrestling media, put out a tweet effectively saying, um, that if you were told, or if you feel as though you should make Olympics like your primary goal as a wrestler, you were terribly misguided, and a lot of people were really upset about that, so I'll give my take on that. I uh, have some updates on the college wrestling season, uh, as it's getting close to the point where we're going to be having our conference tournaments uh, within a month, and then um, some new fight announcements that came up, including a huge one in Bellator. Uh, I'll, I'll recap those as well. So back to the top, we have Jan Blachowicz versus Corey Anderson. Rematch of a fight that happened... Uh, a little while back that Corey Anderson was able to win, win by decision, primarily through his wrestling. In this fight, I would imagine that he was trying to do the same thing, but for him, he was having a lot of trouble getting Blahovich in a position where he could actually, like, get a good clinch against him or even, like, set up a good shot. And so for him, he, with him struggling to, to set up his shots, he was starting to get a little bit impatient. Uh, as far as the strike counts up until the, the actual knockout, it was relatively close. Uh, but there's a lot of single shotting. There was it's not as though there were like long combinations that were happening. But with Anderson having trouble closing the distance on Bohovic, he uh he he definitely overcommitted to a shot and Bohovic was able to time it perfectly through a huge overhand right as Corey Anderson was coming down. Uh dropped him, pretty much had him finished at that point after the right hand landed, but then uh landed another shot on the ground to finish him off, got the knockout, and then luckily for him, with it being so close to where John Jones lives. Uh, Jones had come out, was in the front row, and Blahovich was able to get his little moment where he was calling out John, John Jones, and Jones seemed as though he was receptive to that idea. So for Blahovich, c- coming off of a, a really bad win, and by bad I mean bad as in not very entertaining, a very uh, boring win against Jack Ray Souza, sort of slowed his momentum down, and this was a fight where I think more people coming in thought that if Anderson wins, he's definitely in the title fight, whereas Blahovich was a bit of an afterthought, but after getting a, a knockout the way that he did, it definitely put him in a position where for the people whose brains kind of worked 24 hours at a time and the fight that happened seven days ago with Dominic Reyes is now kind of out of sight, out of mind. Um, they're, they're definitely wanting to see Jan Blachowicz get the next title fight. John Jones seemed as though he was, he was very receptive to it. Uh, as far as John goes, I, I don't know how much say he's really going to get in terms of who he fights next. I, I think for him it's going to be a, a question of how long is it going to take him for, for him to heal from his fight. Uh, how long is it going to take for Dominic Reyes to heal? Did Jan Blachowicz come into this fight with any injuries that he needs time to heal from, or did he even sustain any injuries that he might need time to heal from? And depending on that, that's that's when you really want to start looking at who's going to make more sense for Jones. But if working at it purely from a competitive standpoint, yes, this is a great win for Blachowicz, and maybe under certain, maybe under different circumstances, like had there been a more clear winner of the Jones versus Reyes fight last week, then maybe he is the guy who gets the title fight. Uh, but the fact that Reyes did just have that fight, he had a fight that most people thought he had won. E- even when Blahovich having a great win like this, it, I just don't. I, I don't see a way for him to to leapfrog Reyes unless it's, it's a timing thing where Reyes still needs more time to heal, 
Um, and I think Reyes may have suffered a pretty serious leg injury in that John Jones fight, as many people who fight John Jones will will suffer. So if that's the case and the timing works out, then I'm okay with Jan Blachowicz getting the title fight first. But if everyone's ready around a similar time frame, I think it would make sense where Corey, or not Corey Anderson, where um, Dominic Reyes gets the next title fight. Uh, Jan Blachowicz talked about how if that's the case, he's okay with it. He'll just wait. To me, that's perfectly fine if Blachowicz has to take like eight months, ten months off until he gets a title fight after the Reyes rematch. Although for him, he would be banking on John Jones winning a winning in dominant fashion because if Reyes gets the rematch and wins the rematch, then you probably are in a position where you kind of have to run the trilogy. And at that point, then Blachowicz just kind of killed a bunch of time. He's probably going to have to fight anyway and he'll have missed out on some money that he could have made in the meantime. So for him, that's a bet that he can make, but that's a bet that's also a, a bet on John Jones. And it's not just a bet on John Jones, but it's a bet on John Jones winning and not being too badly injured afterwards or being convinced to move up to heavyweight afterwards. Because in either case, it might not be worth worth the wait. But in the meantime, don't know don't know that I hate the idea of him waiting. But you you got to see how timelines work out first and see who's available the, the quickest and what fight they're going to make. As for the rest of the card, in the coming event, we had a bizarre fight between Diego Sanchez and Michelle Pajera. Michelle Pajera was winning this fight. Uh, looked as though he was winning the first two rounds. Had Diego Sanchez down late in the third. And the reason why Diego Sanchez was down is because it looked as though he was hurt and Pajera was looking to get a finish at that point. Um, got a little bit overzealous, though, and landed a really big knee to the head as Sanchez was down. And effectively what happened is Sanchez was talking to the ref, asked if he would win by DQ if he decided not to continue, and then decided not to continue, and then ended up winning by DQ. So there was some talk about Diego Sanchez quitting in this fight. I, I think Sanchez gets off a little bit because... Fans, know, they have enough of a body work with him when they know he's not a quitter. They know he's the type of guy where if things are getting rough, he's just going to bite down his mouthpiece and keep fighting through it. So what happened last night is a little bit out of character for him. And for that reason, people really weren't that harsh on him. But with that being said, they still felt as though what he did was quitting. I, I, I guess there needs to be like a, a few different ways that we, we qualify what, what quitting would be, or in this case, what, what refusing to continue a fight would mean. I think there's different degrees of it. So there would be a degree where, like, let's just say that you or me somehow get caught up in a position where now I have to bare knuckle box Deontay Wilder, and I'm ab- I want absolutely nothing to do with it. And any way I can get out of it, I'm going to do that. Like, there, there's that type of quitting where it's just like, I, I find an excuse to get out, I'm just getting out of there. I don't think that's the case here with the Diego Sanchez versus Michelle Pajara fight. And the reason why I don't think that's the case is because he asked if he would get a DQ win or not. If he just wants to get out of there, he's not asking that question in the first place. If he just wanted to get out of there, if he had enough, he was if he was scared of Michelle Pajara, it doesn't matter whether or not he gets a DQ. He just wants to get the hell out of there, and he's not going to ask. The fact that he asked tells me that had the ref said, no, 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 we're, we're still going to continue, we're going to go to decision, Diego's probably going to still continue fighting. So it's not as though his actions were that of someone who was scared. What he was doing seemed to be a lot more calculated. And so there are a couple of different ways you can look at the, the calculated side of it. There's the way that I think what happened with Diego Sanchez and the way that a lot of people were talking about what Anthony Smith could have done against John Jones, where it's like, if I don't continue, I'm going to win right now. And as a competitor, as someone who gets paid here, as someone who's going to make twice as much um, because my win bonus will be included, it makes more sense for me to just take the win. So th- there's that angle of it. And then there's also an angle of it where if you think about how a lot of these fouls are scored in MMA, oftentimes they don't even give, take away points. And even if they do take away points, if you think about it, like if, if I were to tell you before a fight, and don't think about this like from a pride standpoint, think about it just from a win or loss standpoint and the money involved. Imagine you have a family to feed or you got bills to pay. If I were to tell you, I'm going to take a point away from you, but 
in exchange for that point, your opponent is going to have to suffer some pretty bad brain trauma from an illegal shot. Um, they're going to have a really bad cut that's going to bleed into their eye uh, or, or just distract them. Uh, they're going to get poked in the eye to the point where they're seeing double out of one of their eyes. Would you give up that one point? Honestly, I think a lot of people, if they're being completely honest with themselves and they're not like trying to bring integrity into it, they're just trying to answer in terms of what's going to give them an advantage. Would you rather give up the point or have have your opponent weakened to that degree? A lot of people would give up the point. And in a lot of these cases, they don't even take the point. Like even with the Michelle Pajara fight, a point had not yet been taken from Michelle Pajara. Now maybe they do. Maybe if Diego decides to, to take the full time to recover, that before they restart, they take a point away from him. But even still... That's still a really good trade-off for the person who delivered the illegal blow. And from a logical standpoint, if you're a fighter out there and your opponent just just gained that advantage against you, I can definitely understand them thinking, like, this this isn't fair. Like, is it right for me to be forced to continue just to make some fans happy, to put myself in a bad situation, um, when in reality, this guy fouled me and the fight is now unfair because of the foul that he committed? So I think when you think of it from that aspect, too, I know most fighters, they're they're not going to want to say it publicly, like, hey, this guy took an unfair advantage, so I didn't want to continue because it was going to be unfair to me. But that definitely has to be something that goes through your head. But kind of as I mentioned before, with Diego Sanchez in this case, him deciding not to continue, I, th- I think he pos- I think had he known he was losing, he probably would have continued. Or had he known that it wasn't it was going to go to like a an early decision, he probably continues. Um, but because he knew that he could win, he's like, you know what, fine, I'll take the win. But to me, this wasn't this wasn't him quitting because he wanted out of there. It was him quitting because he saw an easy win. Is that the right thing to do all the time? I, I mean, it's hard for me to say. Because, again, it, it sucks to know that he probably could have continued and didn't just so he could take the win. But with that being said, Michelle Pajara would have had a, a big advantage there from the damage done by that illegal knee for the final couple minutes of that fight. And is that fair? Should he have had that? Uh, again, I don't I don't know that I can fault Diego Sanchez for not wanting to give him that advantage. So it's just a bit of a tough tough situation, but it's not as though this was a, a knee by Pajara where it looked like Sanchez was in the middle of getting up or he was about to spring back up and he was trying to time it. It, it, it just looked like a poorly timed knee by Michelle Pajara. And unfortunately for him, now he goes, instead of being 2-1 and one in the UFC, he's 1-2, and two, which seems like a much different record to be over 500 by a fight rather than being under 500 by a fight. So for him, it also puts him on a two-fight losing streak, and it means if he loses his next fight, even though, in theory, it should be 2-2 two and two given how he's fought out there in the last couple of fights, uh, it'd make him 1-3 and three and 0-3 oh in his last, and it could potentially put him in a position where he'd be out of the UFC, which is a bit unfortunate. Now, granted, he's a really exciting fighter. I think for him, his fighting style is one where the records, it, it still matters because it's the UFC, but it matters a little bit less because he's so entertaining that people are still going to want to see him fight. But... It's just unfortunate for him, for the way to end it for him, uh, given how that fight was going. Uh, for Diego, I mean, it's not like he's ever going to be another champ. It's not like he's ever going to be a champion at this point. He, he's just a guy who puts on entertaining fights. Uh, got some more weirdness out of him in his corner. Uh, but I, I guess at the end of the day, I'm not too upset with Diego. I, I can understand why he did what he did. Um, and I, I don't feel like he was scared of Michelle or he wanted to get out of it because he just wanted to like stop getting hit by Michelle O'Hara. I think it was just him making a, a calculated decision. Uh, he, he thought I could get the win if he if he took the out there. Didn't want to give Michelle Pajara the benefit uh, for landing a, a big legal knee that caused a big cut, and so he decided to, to stop it there. Fight before that, we had Montana Del Rosa versus Mar Romero Barella. 
Uh, Del Rose was able to win this fight by unanimous decision. Had some good moments on the ground, uh, some good, mo good moments on the feet as well. Uh, we had Brock's, Brock Weaver versus Kazula Vargas. Uh, Vargas was just putting it on Brock Weaver for, for most of this fight. Um, but again, like the Diego Sanchez fight, uh, Vargas also lands an illegal knee. Um, in the Sanchez fight, it's more like it was like the, the knee landed on the forehead and caused a big cut. I'm sure it hurt Diego, um, but it's not as though it like knocked him out. Uh, whereas the the knee on Vargas, had it been a legal knee, uh, the ref probably jumps in right away and stops the fight at that point, and it's just a regular TKO. Because uh, Weaver, at the very least, was like it was at least a flash KO. Um, so at that point, uh, again, this isn't the first round. Even if you take one point away from Vargas, like you've got your opponent severely rocked and has to fight for another 11 minutes, is that completely fair? Uh, and it doesn't really look like they got to the point where they were like letting Weaver decide whether or not he wanted to continue. They were just like, you know what, no, this this can't go on. Um, so here we have a DQ win for Brock Weaver, even though it didn't look, look like he was doing all that well uh, early on in the fight. Uh, then we had a flyweight fight between Ray Borg and Hozier Bontarin. Uh, Bontarin came in with a 16-1 record, um, but Borg was able to just kind of put on a classic Ray Borg performance here. Um, get the, got the win as well. Had 10, 10 takedowns uh, over, over the course of this fight. Uh, for him, though, it was another fight that he missed weight in. He keeps talking after the fact how he wants to continue to fight a flyweight, that that's the right division for him. But if you keep missing weight, you're, you're probably going to have to be forced to move up at some point if you want to stay in the UFC. I think he's fought at Bantamweight a couple times, hasn't had great performances. So for him, at flyweight, he can be a guy who's sort of around that title picture, but at Bantamweight, he's not quite at that level. So from a competitive standpoint, flyweight's the division he wants to be in. But if you keep missing weight, it's tough to keep you there because it's not really that fair to Hajiro Bontarin. He's a 16-1 fighter coming into this fight. Has to fight a guy who missed weight by three pounds and takes a loss. And now it, it looks bad on his record. Most people aren't going to know, aren't going to remember in three months, six months, a year from now that that loss was against a guy who missed weight. They're just going to know that it's a loss. And it, it's just not all that fair to him. Uh, fight before that was between Lando Venado and Yancy Medeiros. When I look at the numbers of this fight, it's surprising that the numbers are as high as they were with Venado landing 100 strikes to Medeiros' 68. It was a lot of one shots from each guy. Uh, oftentimes, Medeiros would be trying to, to throw one shot or two shots at a time, mostly just one shot at a time. Um, but Venado's really quick with his counter, with his counters, especially his counter right hand. Um, so it was just kind of Venado waiting on Medeiros for him to counter him. And then Medeiros, like, not trying to overcommit to the point where he's getting caught in the pocket and then getting countered. Uh, so the fight wasn't quite as good as I expected it to be, but it was still a, a decent fight. But Venado gets the win here by unanimous decision. Uh, on the prelims, we had Tim Means versus Danny Rod Daniel Rodriguez. Rodriguez looked fantastic out there, Really looked really good against Means, had him rocked a couple times. Uh, after rocking him in the second round, caught him in a guillotine choke. Uh, sort of had like a front rear naked choke type of grip on it, which is a really tight grip. I really like using that one. And had it tight enough to the point where before he even started to pull guard to try to finish it, Means was already getting choked enough where he had to tap. Uh, so Rodriguez gets the win there. Uh, had a really interesting fight between Nathaniel Wood and John Dodson. Uh, Dodson's faced a couple other really good up-and-comers and has been on the wrong end of those fights. This one was sort of close. If you look at the total strikes, it was Wood at 68 versus Dotson at 57. Wood also had a takedown in this fight. So it seemed as though Wood was in a position where he could potentially win this fight. Um, but early in the third round, uh, Dotson was, as he's moving backwards, which is kind of crazy, uh, threw two straight um, le left straights. Um, so first one landed decent, but I don't think Wood was, Wood was ready for the second one as he was coming in. Uh, and that one dropped him. And then while he was on the ground, Dotson was able to, to pound him out, uh, open up a pretty good, pretty big cut as well. And was able to get the win there. So for Nathaniel Wood, I think there was a lot of expectation for him that he'd get the win here over Dotson, beat a ranked guy, get into the rankings himself, and be a few fights away from the top of the division. But this is going to be a little bit of a setback for him. But 
I'm sure with time, especially given how the fight went early on, he'll be able to continue continue to make improvements and he'll he'll find his way into the top fifteen eventually. But for him, just kind of unfortunate that this was supposed to supposed to be the night that he did it and didn't end up working out that way. And so he gets knocked out and gets a pretty bad cut over his eye. Uh, then we had Jim Miller versus Scott Holtzman. This was the fight of the night. Uh, Holtzman nearly doubled up uh, Jim Miller in total strikes. Was also able to take him down at one point. Um, so really good performance out of Holtzman. Um, Miller. It's sort of tough with him because ever since that issue with the Lyme disease, when he was fighting with the Lyme disease and he didn't know he had it, uh, just, just got a lot of performances out of him that really weren't all that great. Uh, after kind of understanding what it was, uh, we did get a, a few performances out of him that were looking really good. Uh, and you were sort of wondering, like, are, are we going to get like a, a vintage Jim Miller again now that he knows what he's dealing with and knows how to deal with the Lyme disease? Um, but this this fight right here, it seemed like on paper, as long as he can keep his back off the mat, he'd be, he'd be okay. He only got taken down in one of the rounds, um, but even still, Holtzman was able to do enough on the feet to to get the edge on him. Uh, final scores were 30-27, or 29-28, and 29-28. Um, but before that, we had Devin Clark versus Daquan Townsend. Clark won this one uh, pretty dominantly, two 30-26s and a 30-27. Uh, we had Marab Deviashvili versus Casey Kenny. Uh, Casey's looked really good. I think he was in LFA. Looked like a really really solid prospect. Marab uh, is a guy who whose name you've been hearing a lot of largely because of Matt Sarah and a lot of the guys on his team um, being pretty involved in the media. Um, but for him, th- this was a really dominant performance for him. He had a really good performance against, against Brad Katona as well, but Casey Kenna he was, was a guy who was looking at as a guy who could potentially be an uppercomer for, for, for the Bantamweight division. So for Marab to, to run through him the way he did was really impressive. Even got a 30-25 scorecard in there, although there was also a 29-28 scorecard, which, again, just kind of shows the variance in how judges see, will see the same fight. A couple other fights before that, we had Macy's Chase on. Uh, all three judges' scorecards were 30-26 over Shana Young. And then um, really on Paiva with a really big overhand right that landed on Mark De La, Mark De La Rosa and uh, was able to knock him out in the second round. All right, so then we got the fights that are coming up in Auckland. Uh, unfortunately, and this is something I've talked about in the past, oftentimes when the UFC does their international cards, they're going to have a lot of international talent on there for one it's good to have local people if you're trying to sell tickets, but also if you're flying in a bunch of people from around the world, you're having to pay extra costs to fly them in, but also oftentimes you're having to pay work visas and other things like that. So they generally like to use local talent. When that happens, oftentimes that means that people like me who follow the sport but don't like follow it down to every single fighter are, are going to see a lot of names that they're not terribly familiar with. So in the main event, two names that I am very familiar with, we got Paul Felder versus Dan Hooker. Very interesting style matchup to me because I think that given how both of these guys like to fight, this is going to be a, a fight that's handled on the feet. There's not going to be a ton of grappling. There might be some clinching where there's like some elbows thrown from the clinch, I think, in that area. Um, I guess it depends. I mean, Felder's very good from there, especially with the elbows. Um, but Dan Hooker's pretty long in the clinch as well and has pretty good knees and has pretty good elbows himself. Uh, he's got a four and a half inch reach advantage here, which I'm sure he'll be looking to utilize, he'll be looking to throw from range. Um, so as far as whether, who I'm going to have to pick here, I think Felder is the betting favorite on it. Uh, but if this fight does stay standing for the most part, which I think it's going to, especially with this being a five-round fight, I, I, I'm kind of leaning Dan Hooker's way because I think that he's he, he's going to be better in those areas of the fight, or he's going to be better where the fight takes place. If we get more grappling involved, I think that's where Felder can, de- can definitely take over. Uh, Felder's very good on top, very good elbows from the top of guard. So if he does go for takedowns on Dan Hooker, if he's able to hit the takedowns on Dan Hooker, um, 
he can definitely be dangerous from there. Now, granted, Hooker's nickname kind of comes from him having a really good guillotine, the Hangman. So if Felder is going to try to take him down, he's going to have to be careful about how he does that. He's not going to want to shoot in recklessly and just leave his neck sticking out there. But if this fight does take place on the feet for the most part, which is what I expect, I, I do think Hooker should have a slight edge there. Next fight, or the coming event, is going to be Jimmy Crute uh, versus Michael Oleksiejczuk. So Crute uh, is coming off of his first loss of his career against Misha Serkinov, which was that Peruvian necktie submission of the year level um, submission that he got caught with. Uh, Oleksiejczuk's pretty solid fighter from Poland. Um, not sure that I have a, a ton to say here, but these guys are fairly heavy-handed. Um, but, I mean, it's a 205 fight, so I guess in, in most cases that'll be a, a fair way to explain what's happening. So I, I'd say from a technical standpoint, I don't really know enough about each of these fighters to really break it down much more than that, so I guess I'll, I'll just kind of leave it there. Uh, we got Karolina Kovalkiewicz versus Jan Zhaonan, uh, Ben Sassoli versus Marco Sagerio de Lima, who I'm surprised is still in the UFC. Uh, Brad, Brad Riddell versus Mago Ben Mustafayev. Riddell is uh, another one of those city kickboxing guys. I think he's one of the kickboxing coaches there too, so more of a striker than a than a grappler. Although I think for most of the city kickboxing guys, it's not as though any of them are well known for their wrestling or well known for their jiu-jitsu. Not to say that they're bad at it. Not to say that they're bad at it, but it's not as though they specialize in that area. I know um, Eugene Berman is a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Recently did a podcast with Josh Hanger, uh, that Matt Burn podcast, and was talking about that as well. Uh, we've got Kevin Aguilar versus Zubara Tukukov. So Zubara is kind of that infamous member of Khabib's posse who was wearing the red shirt and jumped in after the Conor McGregor fight and punched him in the back of the head. Um, so he'll be back in the octagon again against Kevin Aguilar, who's 17-2, and two, a pretty good American prospect. Uh, then on the prelims, we have Jalen Turner versus Joshua Kulibau. Uh, we got Jake Matthews versus Emil Mech. Uh, Matthews is looked has looked pretty good um, over time. I think he had a pretty good... I'm, I'm trying to remember if he had that win or not, but he had a fight against um, Lee Jingliang, who's now ranked at welterweight, where he had a really tight guillotine on him, and then Lee just started gouging his eyes, and the ref missed it, and nothing was made of it. Sort of a... It, it was sort of a situation where it's kind of soured me on Lee, even to this point, um, but Jake's a really talented guy, and Emil Mech, when he came into the UFC, it was after a, a really dominant win over Husamar Palhares outside of the UFC, and there was a lot of expectation for him, but it really hasn't worked out for him. Uh, now he's 9-4, and four, and I think if he loses here, he might be out of the UFC for good. Uh, so a lot of urgency on his end. Uh, we've got Callan Potter versus Song Kanan. Kai Kara France versus Tyson Nam. Loma Lukbunmi versus Angela Hill. Maki Pitolo versus Takashi Sato. And then Priscilla Cachoeira versus Shane Dobson. So those are the fights that are going to be on the Auckland card. Um... I guess that brings me back to the last MMA-specific topic here. I guess I got some fight announcements as well, but I'll be going back, going to wrestling after this. But for MMA, I did a video on this um, early in the week, um, but I also talked about this a little bit on the last podcast. But after the issues with the judging at UFC 247, there's a lot of talk about, okay, well, we need to make some changes here. And Kansas was quick to make a change, and they made a change to have open scoring available on the starting in March, which is going to be first starting on an Invicta card early in March. And a lot of people were not happy about this change. Uh, a lot of the talk about was like, well, no, this is a really bad for combat sports. If you've ever seen a combat sport with open scoring, you'll, you'll understand why. Like, yes, it's nice that they're looking to make changes, but this is the wrong one. And I came in on the other end of that argument where I was like, actually, no, I think it's a pretty good change. And I, I think a lot of people who are upset with it, they are probably just looking at very small sample sizes, and they're also looking at 
boxing primarily. So when you think about mixed martial arts, mixed martial arts, obviously, given by the name, it's mixing a handful of different martial arts. But if you think about all the different martial arts that are mixed in it, a lot of them have competitions that are within those singular martial arts. So, for example, wrestling, judo, jiu-jitsu. And in a lot of those competitions, there actually is effectively an open scoring system. So in wrestling, for example, when someone scores a takedown, you know right away whether or not the ref gave that person two or where, how many points that, that guy is up. In jiu-jitsu, same thing. You know what the score is for, for most scoring systems. Now, I, I guess there are some scoring systems that are, are closed, like the fight-to-win system. But for, for the most part, the scoring is open in jiu-jitsu. It's open in wrestling. It's open in judo. And so a lot of the concerns that people will bring about fighting or bring about an open scoring system, you can kind of just look at, well, how does it work in judo? How does it work in wrestling? How does it work in jiu-jitsu? Uh, just to get an idea of whether or not those are, are, are fair concerns. And the main concerns that people have is that in an open scoring system, a fighter could be up, they'll know they're up, and then they'll just kind of pack it in towards the end. So the idea there would be, if you were to say in wrestling, they'll be like, well, if I'm up three to two in wrestling and a takedown's two points and escapes one, but if I'm up just one point in wrestling, well, if there's a minute left, I'm just going to run away the entire time and stall. And what are they going to do about it? I'm, I'm up a point. Uh, in jiu-jitsu, same idea. In judo, same idea. Well, the thing is, is that in those sports, there are rules against stalling. Now, technically in MMA, there's also, there are also rules against stalling. There are also rules against uh, passivity. So there, there actually have been some serious cases where points have been taken away for passivity in, in MMA. Now, it's had to be like to the point where a fight, I think it's like Caleb Starr and Snake Quarry level of a fight where they're actually calling that, but it is on the book. So with open scoring, you may have to start calling it more, but it, it's still there and it's still up to the ref's discretion. So with that being said, if you're up two rounds to zero in a three round fight and you start stalling, well, all of a sudden now you're probably not going to win the third round. So the it, it's going to end up being a one point fight. But now if there's a risk of you losing another point for, for the stalling, well, then it could go to a draw and you can go from getting your win, your win bonus to just making your show money if it goes to a draw. So as long as the refs are going to properly call stalling, if that becomes an actual issue, I don't think that stalling is going to be the main issue. And you also have to think about the fights that are going to get to the point where it's going to be close to the end and someone's going to just try to hang on. In a fight where one fighter would likely finish the other fighter, so if we're looking at Corey Anderson versus Jan Blachowicz, for example, because that fight just happened, whether it's open scoring or not, if Jan Blachowicz finds the opening for the right hand and lands it, like score, scoring doesn't matter. Like that fight's going to go the exact same whether it's open scoring or not. So it's not as though we're going to get like a ton more fights that go to a decision or go to boring decisions that we are going to get otherwise. The fights that are getting finished now are probably still going to get finished under the same under the open scoring system. But I think an argument could be made that under the open scoring system, when you know that you're down two rounds to zero, for example, or you know that you're down, or even if you look at the John Jones fight, if you knew that you had to win the fifth round and you're running low on energy. You're going to take some more chances to either get the finish or at least do enough to steal the round. And taking those chances, either you're going to be successful when you take those chances and you make it a finish or you might get some more exciting moments. Or you're going to fail and you're going to leave an opening to get countered and all of a sudden you're going to be the one who's going to be on the, under, on the other end of it. Uh, but those exciting moments, moments will still happen. So from what I've seen in the other sports that do open scoring, and I've seen a ton of matches for, for wrestling. I mean, I've watched hundreds of matches each season for jiu-jitsu watch a ton of them also ref so any given day that i ref i might ref up to 100 matches so I, i've seen thousands of jiu-jitsu matches as well and to me having that open scoring and having a guy know that they're up up close towards the end of a match it's not as though people just pack it in and it just becomes like a, a crap jiu-jitsu match at that point as long as they understand that they're they're going to get called for stalling, stalling as long as the stalling warnings are there they, they still get after it and the guy who's losing is getting after it even more because he knows he has to get after it um, whereas sometimes if it's a closed scoring system, 
you might be losing, but you might not know you're losing or you might not think you're losing. So you might not actually be as aggressive as you otherwise would be had you known exactly what the score was. And plus, when we're making this change to the system, it's not just about what's more exciting to fans. The reason why people were complaining about the the scoring systems in the first place, it's not as though, oh, this wasn't exciting for us. The, the reason why people were complaining is because they felt it wasn't fair to the fighters and they want what's fairest um, within a competitive architecture. They want what's fairest for the competitors. Well, I don't know how you can argue that an open scoring system is less fair to the fighters than a closed scoring system. I think from a fairness standpoint, um, from a fairness and competition standpoint, it, for example, having an open scoring system is definitely better than having a closed scoring system. The question is going to be, if, if we are going to assume that fights are going to be less exciting under open scoring than closed scoring, the, the first question is, how much less exciting are we willing to put up with to, to offset the fairness that we're adding here with the open scoring? And then the next question is, okay, now that we've identified how much, how much we're willing to put up with, do we think that an open scoring system is going to make things even more boring than that, less boring than that, boring than that? Or as I'm saying, having an open scoring system can actually make things more exciting because it's going to force the people who are down to be more aggressive than they otherwise would be. And for the people in front, yes, you might be a little less aggressive, but again, if you know that the stalling warnings could be coming, if you know that stalling points could be coming, you, you still have to be active. And again, if I got a guy who's chasing me and trying to knock me out, just constantly running around in circles for five minutes isn't necessarily the best way to handle. It. I still probably want to be able to like push into them and at least like get into a clinch position. I at least want to be able to land some shots on them to kind of slow them down and be like, hey, if you're going to chase after me, you got to be worried that I'm going to land on you too. So it's not as if someone's just going to run around, like just run run laps in the octagon for five minutes, and that's going to be how they they handle it when they're up two rounds to none. So to me. I think open scoring is a good idea. We're going to get some more examples in MMA and see how it looks in an MMA situation. I know some people were talking about in boxing that some of those fights weren't all that exciting. Look, there are plenty of really bad fights in boxing, too. Um, but when you think about a lot of the, the infamous boxing robberies, I mean, imagine had there at least been an open scoring system there. Like, people would have known what was going on as was happening. I mean, the fighters would have been able to do whatever they could, at least in the meantime. Um, but if you're if you're pretty damn sure that you've won 9 of 12 rounds, or 9 of the first 11 rounds, and you're hitting the 12th round, and... Little do you know that the judges have given seven of them to your opponent, or given six of them to the opponent, for example. You, you can definitely put more effort into that last round and give yourself a better chance than you otherwise would have. So, as far as I'm concerned, I don't see any issue with open scoring. I, I know they don't call it open scoring specifically in the sports where it's there, whether it's basketball, football, hockey, jujitsu, wrestling, judo. Um, but there are definitely benefits to having it there. I know people are concerned about stalling at the end of games, but. Oftentimes, when you know what the scores are at end of games and you know the scores are close, that's when things are the most exciting, and that applies to other sports as well. Think about a close basketball game at the end. Um, oftentimes, that's the most exciting part is when it's like a three-point game and you're down to the final minute and you know it's close. Granted, one team might be trying to kill the clock, but the other team's still trying to be aggressive and score, and that can create some exciting moments. Football can be exciting at the end. Hockey is definitely exciting at the end. Oftentimes, they'll pull the goalie. Those are some of the more exciting parts of the game. So... To me, I don't see the issue with there being open scores and having a fighter know that they absolutely need to steal a round or, or get a finish at the end. I don't think stalling is going to be the issue that people are, are making it out to be. So, I, I'm curious to see how it looks in Kansas, and I'm hoping that it goes well, and I hope, I'm hoping that more states pick it up and it becomes a, a more common thing in MMA. Um, next topic is going to be on wrestling. So this is something I've done a video on in the past. I, I don't know how deep I want to get into it right now, but it, uh, effectively... What happened was Willie Saylor, who used to be the flow and now is off doing his own thing. I guess he wasn't happy with um, the the work environment around flow. But he put out a tweet effectively saying, like, 
if your dream is to become an Olympic champion, like you've been misguided. And the intent behind what he was saying was pretty much like if as a wrestler, like your North star, like your main goal is the Olympics, then there's, then you've been misguided. Um, but if you were to say, if as a wrestler, your goal is to just be the best wrestler in the world, then you're, you have a good goal. So the idea behind what he's saying there is that the Olympics themselves, the brand of the, themselves, the, the organization that's been known to be corrupt itself, like trying to just latch yourself onto them specifically and winning a medal from them specifically, it, it, it's sort of weird. And in, in a way, that obsession with the Olympics in the wrestling community is definitely harmful to them. Um, whenever the Olympics request changes for them, it oftentimes it changes how they handle their sport on, on non-Olympic years. Uh, they, they definitely adjust how the wrestling season goes in an Olympic year. There's not going to be a world championship this year, for example. So if you want to be a world champion in 2020, it's got to be at the Olympics. The actual um, organization for wrestling, uh, the UWW, is not running their own world championship, which, again, it, it, it's just kind of weird and doesn't seem like it's in the sport's best interest. When you think about any sport that is successful and financially viable right now, I mean, just name the sport. I, I can pretty much guarantee you that no matter what, what sport you're going to name, the Olympics are not the premier championship there. So we, we can just kind of go through that exercise now. So if you think about American football, it's huge. American football isn't even in the Olympics. Basketball, it's huge. When they talk about the ring debates between Jordan and LeBron, for example, no one talks about how many Olympic rings they have or how many times they've won the Olympics. Like no one cares about the Olympics within that, within basketball uh, relative to the NBA finals. The NBA finals is the primary thing you want to win. You want to win the Larry O'Brien trophy. It's not the gold medal. It's the Larry O'Brien trophy. That's the biggest prize in, in the NBA in hockey. It's the Stanley cup. It's not the Olympic gold medal. And we even got to the point in hockey, which I really like what the NHL did is they were saying, look, the Olympics, they're not paying our paying us for these athletes. These athletes are worth tons of money. Why would we give them to you for free just so you can make a bunch of money off of them? Like, if you guys want to pay us, okay, maybe we can work on a deal here, but you're not paying us, and so we're not going to bring them. IOC didn't pay, so you know what happened? The NHL players didn't go to the Olympics. Uh, but again, for, for hockey, it, it, it's become a pretty big sport. But again, the Stanley Cup is what hockey players want to win. It's not the Olympic gold medal. That's not the primary goal there. Soccer. You, you got the World Cup. You've got a lot of the, the Champions Leagues and the other um, major leagues. Those are bigger than the Olympics. In tennis, which is an, an individual sport, kind of like wrestling, you're trying to win Wimbledon, U.S. Open, Australian Open, French Open. Those are the Grand Slams. Those are the tournaments you want to win. The Olympics, I mean, it's kind of like a nice side tournament, sort of like a fifth Grand Slam the, in the year that it goes, but it's not at the level of Wimbledon. And again, when people are looking at how many Grand Slams a player has won, Olympic gold medals aren't tied into that. So for wrestling, it, it, it's odd that they are putting the Olympics as, as the top championship, as the premier championship, rather than putting their own UWW World Championship as the premier championship. And as long as they do that, it's not going to be beneficial to the sport. You, you have to realize that if you want to get to the, the point where these other sports are at, you have to be able to create your own infrastructure and create your own championships um, that are more valuable within the sport than the Olympics are. And that's part of the reason why I'm not in favor of the Olympics being brought or in jiu-jitsu being brought into the Olympics, especially right now where the IBJJF is kind of their own thing, ADCC is their own thing. It's kind of implied at this point that the premier championship in the Gi is IBJJF and the premier championship no Gi is ADCC. But it's not as though, like, there's a professional league that's there right now uh, that everyone looks to as, like, the top league. So if the Olympics come into play, it, it could be pretty easy that with the brand value that the Olympics have that people are going to look at them and say, you know what, well, whoever the Olympic champion is, that's the best. And then all of a sudden the Olympics will have the same cachet in the jiu-jitsu world that it does in the wrestling world. And it, it's been pretty harmful in the wrestling world. So uh, from my understanding, what, what Willie Saylor was trying to say, he was pretty much 
making a point along those lines. He was saying, look, if you're if you're making the Olympics your premier championship, um, whoever put that idea in your mind has misguided you. And to that end, I, I definitely agree. I know there are a lot of uh, high-level wrestlers who were upset with Bully for what he was saying, but I think their idea was they felt as though what they were putting all their effort into was was being made fun of by him when he said that. But his point wasn't, like, if you're trying to become the the best wrestler in the world, which sort of is a right along the same lines of trying to become an Olympic champion. I, I mean, effectively, I guess you could say it is the, the same thing. Now, granted, with wrestling, one of the things that I hate about wrestling is that even in their own world championships, if you have a bracket of, like, 16 different guys at a weight class, it's not the 16 best guys in the world. It's arguably the best guy in the world from 16 different countries, and that's also what the Olympics does. They don't just put a tournament together with the best 16 or 32 guys in a bracket. It's a representative from each country. Um, but either way, for a lot of these guys, they're, they're trying to become the Olympic champion, so I guess to them, when they when they hear that, it's kind of like, hey, you're telling me that everything I'm, I'm working for right now isn't worthwhile, but Willie's point wasn't don't try to become a wrestling world champion as much as it was don't hitch everything to the to the brand cachet and the brand value of the five rings, uh, especially with that brand being as corrupt as we know it to be. Um, so a couple things to talk about from college wrestling. Uh, we had a, a pretty big wrestling meet in Iowa City between Minnesota and Iowa. I was able to win there 35-6. to six. Uh, I guess some notable stuff there. Spencer Lee didn't have to wrestle Pat McKee because Pat McKee was injured, but Minnesota, despite being a Big Ten team and despite being a team that's oftentimes in the top ten, they didn't have a backup at 125, so end up forfeiting that weight. Uh, we had a pretty big heavyweight match between number one and number three with Gable Stevenson and Max Mirren. Or not Max Mirren. Max Mirren is 141-pounder. Uh, Anthony Cassiope. Um, but uh, Cassiope was never able to take Gable down. Gable took him down a few times and was able to win that match. Um, the reason why Max Mirren was on the mind, though, is that he had a really big match with Mitch McKee. Um, under the flow rankings, it was Mirren at three and McKee at five. Mirren's been dealing with injuries all year. He's been had a sh- has had a shoulder harness on all year. And for the last few weeks, he hasn't been in the lineup. Carter, ha- Carter Happel has. Um, but s- somewhat surprisingly, Happel wasn't in the lineup for this one. Mirren was back. And not only was he back, but he was back without uh, an arm sleeve or a shoulder or a shoulder brace and was able to, despite getting taken down first, was able to, to land a, a takedown to tie it. Um, late in the third, looked as though he was able to land a takedown right as time expired to, to win it at the end. Um, took it back because he just, uh, according to them, they, it was time ran out just before he was able to scoop up the leg and and finish it uh, but then they go into overtime and then Mirren's able to get another takedown there and actually get that one within regulation time and get the win there so big win for him to to solidify his spot as a top three guy at 141 right now and that'll definitely help him with seeding for the Big Tens um, I, I guess the match before is probably worth, worth mentioning because Austin DeSanto just, even though he went against an unranked guy in Boo Dryden um, it, it was somewhat surprising to see him back already um, two weeks after his injury against Roman Bravo Young now he was he, he did have a leg sleeve and a, and a brace underneath that sleeve. My assumption, based off of what happened, is that he he sprained a, a ligament in his knee in that match against Roman Bravo Young. He didn't tear it; he sprained it. Uh, a, a tear can take months for you to to be able to recover from, where sprains are more along the lines of weeks. So if you sprain a, a ligament in your knee, oftentimes that's like a four to six week recovery, sometimes six to eight weeks. Um, but if you tear something, that can be more like months, so six months. Um, so for him, it looks like it was more of a sprain than a tear. Um, I'm sure he's still feeling it right now. I'm sorry, sure he's still injured right now. Um, but after a couple of weeks, it sort of gets a little bit better, where at least moving in straight lines is okay. And it looks like the brace that he had on was one that makes it pretty difficult for, for it to kind of like cut at different angles and to bend at different angles. So I think it kind of kept, kept the joint moving straight back and forth. And 
he felt comfortable enough with that and the, the coaching staff was comfortable enough with that where they will they were able to get him out there and he wrestled a pretty good match there and was able to win by a tech fall uh as far as other matches in that go we had uh, a really good match at 149 so we had pat lugo versus brayton lee um brayton lee's had some really good matches with sammy sasso split those sammy sasso was able to get a win over pat lugo um did so by riding time more so than by actually being able to take him down um, but Lugo was able to get an early takedown here against Brayton Lee and then was defensively sound enough not to get taken down, was able to just win on that one takedown. Uh, but for him, still solidifies his spot in the rankings and also is going to help him with his seeding for the Big Tens. Um, as far as other matches, I mean, there was a decent match at 174, but Cameron was able to get a pretty quick, pretty quick pin there, so I guess that kind of covers that. Uh, but the biggest meet of the weekend was Ohio State versus Penn State, number two versus number three. Um, happened at Penn or at the Bryce Jordan Center um, on Penn State's campus. Penn State, I believe they sold out that um, arena as well, around 16,000 fans, which again is awesome for college wrestling. Biggest matchup of that duel was at 141 between number one in the nation, Luke Pletcher from Ohio State, and number two, Nick Lee from Penn State. Uh, Lee's looked fantastic this year. It looks like he's made some big improvements over last year. Same for Pletcher, who finished, I believe, fifth at um, 133 last year, moved up a weight, and has been fantastic all year. Uh, started this match strong, got the first takedown, but Lee was able to put it on from there and ended up winning by a score of 8-4. to four. Uh, So that'll move Nick Lee up into number one. Uh, as, as the rest of the, the meet went on, I'd say for the most part, most, most of the matches went as expected. I guess there were some surprises, like at heavyweight, where Gary Traub was able to get a win over Seth Nevels. Um, but for the most part, things went about as expected, uh, outside of Lee being able to knock off Luke Pletcher. And with this meet ending by the score of 20-16, to 16, um, the three-point swing where had, had Pletcher won, that's three points that Ohio State gets and three points that um, Penn State doesn't, so I guess it's technically a six-point swing. Uh, it was a four-point difference, so that match there kind of decided the ended up deciding the meet. So big win for Nick Lee, not only for him getting moved up in the rankings, but also for Penn State being able to hang on there and get the win at home against Ohio State. Last thing to talk about is going to be some fight announcements. So we've got a few of them. We've got... A big champion versus champion. Well, I guess champion versus ex-champion at this point. Uh, between welterweight champion Douglas Lima going up to face Gegard Mousasi for the now vacant middleweight championship after Rafael Lovato Jr. had to retire uh, due to brain um, some spots that he had in his brain that he talked about on the Joe Rogan experience. Uh, so we did have a similar fight where we had uh, Roy McDonald moving up to, to face Gegard Mousasi, and that did not go very well for McDonald. Uh, he was trying to make a grappling match out of that. wasn't very successful with it, uh, and eventually was just, w- was put away by Gegard Mousasi. Um, Lima, you would figure, is probably going to be making more of a stand-up fight out of this. You'd imagine his leg kicks are going to be pretty effective here if he's able to land him. Um, he'll, he'll be a little bit undersized uh, against Gegard Mousasi, but he's a really big welterweight. So from a matchup standpoint, this is going to be a really interesting fight to watch. Um, I'm, I'm definitely leaning towards Mousasi, but if Lima gets the win here, not only does it make him a, a two-division champion in Bellator, but... It's going to draw a lot of attention to him where people are saying, you know what, I know some people have been saying that this guy might be the best welterweight in the world, but now that he's beaten Musasi, maybe I actually have to like seriously consider it. So for him, it's definitely going to be a big legacy fight for Douglas Lima if he's able to get the win there. And obviously for both Lima and Musasi, whoever gets the win there also becomes the champion in the white division, which is significant in its own right. Um, another fight that was announced was Alexi Olenek versus Fabricio Verdum. Uh, so you got a, a battle of heavyweight grapplers with different styles. Verdun more for the jiu-jitsu style, whereas Olenek, he does have a jiu-jitsu style, but he sort of got um, some, some more unorthodox techniques that he likes to go for, for, for sure. So that'll be a fun one to watch. We've got a fight that may or may not be confirmed at this point. 
um, between Israel, um, Islam Makachev and Gregor Gillespie. I was seeing some stuff about this online. I'm not sure if this is finalized yet or if this is just something they're talking about. Usually for the fights announced part, I'm, I'm talking about fights that actually are officially announced. This one, I'm not quite sure if it's official yet. Uh, if, if it does happen, uh, you would imagine that Makachev's going to have the advantage on the feet, but it's going to be really interesting to see uh, see Gregor coming after him and trying to trying to take him down and control him. And there's a lot of talk about Gregor maybe being the guy to beat to beat Khabib Nurmagomedov. Uh, a lot of times you think about Khabib taking guys down and beating him up, and the question is, well, what if he's able? What if he faces a guy who he can't take down, but's a better striker than him? That's one type of matchup people want to see, but the other type of matchup people want to see is the guy who can take Khabib down and beat Khabib at his own game. And there was some thought with Gregor Gillespie that maybe he was the guy to do that. So against a guy like Makachev, who's got a, a handful of similarities to Khabib, if he's able to to take down Makachev and beat him up on the ground, it, it's definitely going to make that matchup a little bit more interesting with, with him versus Khabib. Because I think at this point for Islam Makachev, he's a very tough fight. And I think for him, he's having a lot of trouble getting top-ranked matchups right now because of that, because a lot, he doesn't have a huge name, but he's a very good fighter. But the, the angle that I've taken, and this is something I've been talking about with Kevin Lee, too, is that just because he isn't the highest-ranked guy, if you are a high-ranked lightweight, the reason why you would want to take a fight with Islam Makachev is it, it's sort of like that Betch Kohea angle that she took back um, back in the day against Ronda Rousey, where Betch was just finding all of Ronda's friends and beating them up. And then for one, after she beat up one of Ronda's friends, it would be like, all right, well, now this is something for Ronda to pay attention to so she can take a fight with me. But also, it, it would sort of like help her like build this idea where it's like, well, if I can beat them, I can beat Ronda too. And, and try to convince the fans that. So she was like trying to make this case, well, look at how I'm able to, to box against these guys. I can do the same thing to Ronda. I can, st- I can outbox Ronda and I can, I can finish her in the same type of way. Now, obviously, we saw how that fight went. She did nothing close to outboxing Ronda Rousey, but to get that fight in the first place by beating up Ronda's friends, um, it, it was definitely a good route for her rather than having to beat all the top girls in the division. So I think if you're a top lightweight right now, if you can beat Islam Makachev, for one, you're definitely getting Khabib's attention, but for two, and this is especially the case with Islam uh, compared to like the Ronda Rousey situation, is that Islam's fighting style is fairly similar to Khabib's fighting style, whereas like a Shayna Baszler or like a Jasmine Duke weren't really all that similar to Ronda Rousey. Um, but if you do beat Islam Makachev, for one, you have Khabib's attention because you just beat his really good friend, but for two, you can then make the make the case to the fans like, hey, I just beat like great value Khabib. Imagine what I can do with a regular Khabib. So, if Gillespie is the best guy that's willing to take the fight against Islam Akhachev, then I mean that's still a great fight. I'm still definitely excited to see it. And for Gillespie, if he gets the win there, it can definitely push him push his way back up the the lightweight rankings, and he'll be able to build some momentum there. But if, if he does take this fight, and if Islam gets the better of him, I I would still like to see some top lightweights take the fight with Islam. If for no other reason than to to use it as a sort of like a launch pad or a launch pad towards Khabib, uh, and then the last fight to talk about is Marina Rodriguez versus Claudia Gadella. Um, as much of a striker versus grappler match as you're going to find right now, uh, Gadella is mostly known for jujitsu. Likes to take a lot of fights to the ground, uh, control from top. Her submissions could be a little bit better, but she's still pretty dominant from top. And Marina Rodriguez, pretty long, uh, lanky, really good Muay Thai fighter. Uh, relative to the rest of her division. So I would imagine how this fight's going to go is that Cadelia's going to work her work her butt off to try to get this fight to the ground, but won't be terribly successful. And for as long as it stays on the feet, I would see Marina Rodriguez having the edge there. If she is able to take Rodriguez down, then great for her, and she might be able to, to definitely take, take over some rounds, maybe even get herself into a position to finish. But I would imagine she's going to have difficulty with that. So for that reason, I'm gonna, I, I would pick Marina Rodriguez to win this fight. 
so that covers it for this week. Um, obviously, upcoming this week we'll have the the Auckland card, then we'll have the another card coming up the week after that. So next week, obviously, I'll be recapping Auckland and then previewing the card after that. So that's that's what we got to look forward to, and I'll have a podcast up next Sunday to to go over all that.